In the book of Romans, Paul asks a rhetorical question five times. What shall I say then? I want to briefly look at those five. That's not really the subject I have in mind, but it's a way to introduce the subject I have in mind today. Okay. The first time I found that he asked it was in Romans 4 and verse 1. After proclaiming that both Jews and Gentiles are justified by faith, Paul anticipated their question. He anticipated that they would be pushback. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Romans and just done a power reading, but as you read that book, it looks like there was nearly as much conflict there between Jews and Gentiles being a mixed congregation as there was in the, in the church at Galatia. And there was a lot of conflict there. If you ever look at his writings, notice how many times he contrasts Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised. I mean, it is a lot. So evidently there was a strong Jewish presence. No, I say Jewish presence. Jews that converted to Christianity that were there, but that were still holding on to quote unquote the old paths. And they were causing a lot of confusion in the church. So as he presents this to the book of Rome, or not to the congregation at Rome, through the book of Romans, he anticipates the pushback, what's going to happen here. So he's going to, they're going to ask, what about circumcised Abraham? Okay, so let me go there real quick. And I'm in Romans chapter 3. I want to read the last three verses of chapter 3, and then I'm going to read the first verse of chapter 4. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. What shall I say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? And he goes on to a pretty long, lengthy discussion, discussion talking about Abraham. Okay? I don't want to prove, that's not my sermon today. I just want to show you that he was anticipating something. Okay, remember what this, what shall we say then, is. That's the object of my sermon. Okay, let's go to the second one. Let's go to chapter 6 and verse 1. Chapter 6 and verse 1. And right at the end of chapter 5, this is a discussion on federal headship. Well, we tried to preach on that about a year and a half ago. And basically, the doctrine of federal headship means that Adam, as your heir, committed a sin, and every one of his family inherited the sin from Adam without doing anything. Got it? You did not have to accept Adam as your personal sinner. You got it. Got it? And then it's compared to Jesus Christ, who through all his family, he made them heirs of glory. And what happened was, is when he realized that that congregation was going to say, wait a second, since Jesus Christ secured my eternity, eternity, he anticipated pushback that why not just live like the devil? Okay, so let's let's look at this. In chapter 6 and verse 1, let me read that. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid. Okay, so the first one was an anticipation of Jew and Gentile being justified by faith. The second one is secured salvation, we can live like the devil. Okay, number three, it shows up in 7-7. We see the question again, what shall we say then? What happened was after 
contrasting a life lived in the spirit versus a life lived in the law and the way he presented it, he anticipated the question, what was the law mistake? No, it's just something no one could keep. Well, there was something only one person can keep. The next one was the doctrine of election. He went to great lengths describing a pair of twins that were still in the womb, and one was elect and one was not. And Paul, knowing his audience, knew that they would have pushback, and he anticipated the question, is God fair or is God unfair? And then the last one, and it shows up at the end of nine, chapter 9, 9 and verse 30, after proclaiming Gentile sonship being evidenced by faith, Paul anticipated the question, what about Hebrews who did not know Christ? My point in sharing all this with you is at the heart of every misunderstanding is either a poor understanding of sin or a poor understanding of grace or a poor understanding of both. What's going to happen is you're going to run to all kinds of people, people that are church, people that are unchurched, people that are Bible literate, people that are Bible illiterate. And what you're going to find out is just about in every case, there's going to be pushback, a poor understanding of sin, a poor understanding of grace, or a poor understanding of both. And I even got fancy today and I drew a little picture that I stole from the head of Faith Christian School. He ran it by me and he says, what do you think? Is this okay? And I said, it's good enough to steal. So there you go. Okay, that's the best form of flattery I know. So I'm going to give him all credit for it. Okay, so what I want to do is you get a little piece of paper there and you're taking notes. I want you to draw two pieces, two lines on your sheet of paper. Okay, one towards the top of it, I want you to draw a line going from left to right that kind of angles up. And then right below it, I want you to draw a second line on a piece of paper that kind of angles down. Okay? So it kind of looks like a V, but the V's not quite detected, attached at a vertex. So you notice the lines get further apart. Okay? The top line's going to re- represent our understanding of grace, and the bottom line's going to under- represent our understanding of sin. So what's going to happen is let's pretend we have someone that has a poor understanding of both. they got a poor understanding of sin, and they got a poor understanding of grace. And to connect those two lines, you know what they need? They need a little Jesus. Oh, Sister Cindy got it. He, she knows where I'm going. They need a little Jesus. Let me give you an example. I think the rich young ruler is an example of someone that was looking for a little Jesus. I'm going to read Luke 18, 18 through 21. And we call him the rich young ruler, and he's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one gospel we find he's young, one we find he's rich, and one we find out he's a ruler. So we call him the rich young ruler, even though gospel calls him that. But when you parallel him, you'll find out he was the rich young ruler. And he runs up to Jesus Christ, and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, that tells me he thinks he can earn salvation. So my guess is his understanding of grace is kind of messed up. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest me thou good? None is good, save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother. And he says, All these have I kept from my youth up. You know what that tells me? He's got a poor understanding of sin. Amen? From my youth up. In my adult life, 
I never did anything wrong. So here's an example of a person that has a poor understanding of grace, but he also has a poor understanding of sin. And you know what he's doing? He's looking for a little Jesus. In the world we live today, America, 2023, in our woke society, we live in a society that doesn't have a very good understanding of sin. Matter of fact, about a half earlier in this year, somewhere around January, February, I did a message, how do you witness to the woke? One of the problems of witnessing to the woke is they don't believe in any absolutes, and we say the Bible's absolute. The other problem is they don't believe in sin. I just do what I want, whatever feels right. And God says certain behaviors are sin. So if a person, how do you introduce a savior to a, someone that doesn't need a savior? And the reason why they don't have a savior is because they don't sin. And even if they do get an understanding of sin, they'll say, okay, I'll grant that murder's wrong. They're still looking for a little Jesus because their understanding of sin is so poor. So one of the problems out there when you're, you're witnessing, you need to take a step back. You try to consider the person, where they're coming from, and you've got to realize they've got a poor understanding of grace and sin. Now, you'll run into some people like that. And I'm going to give you, the, give you some thoughts about that later on, but let me introduce the four types of people. So let's go to the second one, and let's go back to our little picture here. I've got my two lines again. I've got one that's angling up. I've got one that's angling down. And let's take a person that has a pretty good understanding of grace, but they don't have a very good understanding of their sin. Or of sin. Are there people like that? Yeah. If you get to a point where you put your sin on God, my guess is you don't have a very good understanding of sin. All right, let me give you an example of someone like that. I'm going to go to Jeremiah 7, 9, and 10. Jeremiah 7, 9, and 10. He's, God is talking through Jeremiah, but he's talking to Judah. This is after Israel has split, northern tribe, southern tribe. He's talking to Judah. Will ye steal, murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely, burn incense unto Baal, walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do these abominations. God's saying, are you really going to run that? You're going to come into the house of worship, and you're going to commit all these abominations, and you're going to say, God made me do it. He ordained that sin. And the answer is no. So when you're living a life, and that was basically what was discussed in Romans 6.1, God was asking that question, are, since you understand what Jesus did for you as a federal head and you secured your eternal salvation, are you going to live like the devil? And the answer is no. I'm not going to live like the devil. Jesus died for those sins. It would be spit in his face to say the finished work. It would be very unthankful to do those things. It would be a misunderstanding of how much he detests sin and I'm going to do the things he detests because he has blessed me with eternal self. No, I'm not going to do those things. So we might run into that crowd. Here's the third one. There's the flip-flop. Go back to our picture. Angle up, angle down. Top one representing our understanding of grace. The other one representing our understanding of sin. 
Let's go to the other one that has a pretty good understanding of how sin in their life, but they have a poor understanding of grace. I would describe that as a legalist. Amen? That would be someone that was just weighted down with guilt. I think Peter could be described as that person. Let's go to him. And I did a message on him. Not re- I'm picking these because I'm not re- preaching sermons, but these are examples that are pretty close in your past. I preached this one in April. And I tried to remind you all the knuckleheaded things Peter did in the 24 hours before Jesus was crucified. Everybody knows denying the Lord three times, but think of all the other things he did. Remember the foot washing stuff where he says, you can't wash my feet. Okay, wash my whole body, right? Pulls out the sword, lops off a servant's ear. Jesus says, no, we don't roll that way. Right, he says, will you pray for me? He fell asleep. He got in the argument about who's the best preacher. And he ran when the Jews came and he denied them the three times. And then he spun and he got the look. And then three days and three nights, He's thinking of all the ways he messed up. He knew about sin. But you know what? He didn't have very good understanding of grace. And it took him quite a while to get it. Amen? In Mark fourteen seventy two, and the second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him before the cock crew twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. And then I find right after the resurrection, here's part of the grace. He tells the women, he says, women, he says, go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter too. He was looking for Peter. He knew how depths of despair that he was in. He says, go tell Peter I'm arisen. And that's what he did. I want to make this comment. I don't think the cock in here was a rooster. Um, what do you call the guy that goes three o'clock and all's well? The town crier, yeah, that's what the that's what the cock is. I believe every time Peter heard that man scream out, the cock crow, the the town crier, I believe every time he thought, and it was a reminder of his sin. For the rest of his life, every time he heard that cock crow, yep, that's me. I got sin, right? But you got to overcome that with a good knowledge of grace. Okay, so that's three. There's the people that don't understand sin or grace, the people that don't want to understand sin, people that don't understand grace. But then let's talk about the person that understands both. So now we got the two lines, one going up, one going down. Someone with a good understanding. You know what he's got? He's got a big Jesus. Right? And the more you understand the depths of your sin, the more you understand what Jesus did for you, and your Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I think a good example of him would be a man named Gaius. I want to read his account in 3 John 2 through, 2 through 6. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper, be in health even as thy soul prospereth. Here's a man whose soul is prospering. I think one of the reasons why it's prospering is he understands his sin, but he also understands grace. And what does he do? For I rejoice greatly when brother came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers who have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after godly sort, thou shalt do well. You know what his life is? His life is a manifestation of 1 John 4, 9 through 11. 
If this was manifested, the love of God towards us, because that he sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might have live through him, that's the grace. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And that's the example. We do good works not to earn heaven. We do good works because we were been given heaven. We do it to say thank you. And that's exactly what... Uh, Gaius's life uh, represented. Okay, so let's 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 look at them all together. Man, what a mess that is, right? There's a whole bunch of lines there, but you got little Jesus, you got slanted Jesus, you got skewed Jesus, and then you got big Jesus. My goal as a pastor of this church is to move you from the left to the right, to move you from little Jesus to big Jesus. That means sometimes I got to preach sin. Think about it. And I'm, I, I don't like making fun of other people, but if you take these great big mega church pastors that have the television broadcast, you know, like a Joel Olstein that never says the word sin, you know, how big can his Jesus be? You know, he's, he's preaching a little Jesus. Because if you don't understand the depths of your sin, you don't understand the depths of the grace that it took you to get you out of the mess. And that's a little Jesus. So as we share the gospel with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, and the clerks at the hardware store or wherever we at when we share it we, you got to do a lot of listening and you got to figure where they're at is their understanding of sin is it their understanding of grace is their understanding of both and we're trying to move them from little Jesus to big Jesus we want to put down a magnified Jesus the understanding of sin is manifested by humility and the understanding of grace is manifested by boldness. And you're thinking, humble but bold. That's almost like an oxymoron, isn't it? That's a contradiction of term. How can you be both humble and bold? Well, you can. And if you know a big Jesus, you're going to be humble and bold. You're going to be humble relative to your sin, but you're going to be bold relative to his promises. And that's someone that understands and recognizes and worships a big Jesus. That's the Jesus I want to recognize. That's the Jesus I want to tell to my children and my children's children. A big Jesus. I'm, again, I'm, I'm using illustrations that we've preached recently. And I don't know how well you remember these. But, but, but when you meet people, you're going to meet everybody. You're going to meet people that are skewed one way. or they, they got little Jesus that got slanted Jesus that got skewed Jesus. You're going to meet them all. And when I see this, Barak was a guy that was humble, but he wasn't bold. Samson was a guy that was bold, but not humble. You're going to talk to him different, y'all. Rahab was one, she was both humble and bold. Jephthah was neither humble nor bold. Guess what? And they're all in Hebrews 11. Imagine that. So much for our lit religionist boxes. It doesn't work that way. We don't do it to get him into heaven. We do that to get him peace on earth. That's why we share this. Our goal is for humble and bold. Have you ever met all bold? No, if you haven't, go read Samson's life. I want to look at young Jacob. This is a prayer that I just flat out wear out. This is when Jacob was first called. And I want to show you that usually someone that's believing in a little Jesus is either young biologically 
or spiritually, kind of a babe in Christ. And this is Jacob. And notice this prayer. Jacob was bold with his wants, but he was humble with God's promise. Y'all, that's not a good Christian place to be. But you got to start somewhere. And this is where Jacob started. Notice this prayer. It's a little paraphrase so I could fit it on the screen, but he said, Jacob vowed a vow. He says, if God will be with me and keep me in his way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house and, and then, then shall the Lord be my God. What a gift to God, amen? You feed me, you clothe me, you do what I want, you keep me safe, then you can be my God. He was bold in his wants, but he wasn't very bold in his promises, was it? So, God put him in the ringer for 20 years. Y'all, it doesn't need to take 20 years. Some of you, it does take 20 years. Sometimes it takes me 20 years in some areas of my life. It doesn't need to take that long. But if it takes that long, God will take that long. Let's go to a prayer at the end of his life. I call this a prayer of a more seasoned Jacob. Notice the tone. He's going to go where he's bold in God's promises, and he's going to be humble in his wants. It's okay to ask for the things you want, but you've got to be humble about it. That's not the things you're bold in. The things you're bold in is God promises. So this is how it can work. Genesis 32, 9 through 12. Jacob said, after 20 years of praying that God-awful prayer in chapter 28, Lord, which said unto me, return unto thy country and I will deal well with thee. Look what he says there. He says, God, you promised this. I I didn't ask for you this promise. You you promised it. Matter of fact, you promised it to my grandpa. You promised it to my dad. And you promised it to me. And Lord, you said so. Y'all, it's okay to be bold in God's promises. Matter of fact, I don't know how to be bold any other way except in God's promises. You're on safe ground when you're quoting scripture. I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies and all the truth which thou hast showed thy servant. You know what? Sounds like he got a little bit of growth in humility, huh? Do you understand it? He's bold in the promises, but he's humble in his wants. That's a whole different Jacob than 20 years earlier. Let's Lord, give me, give me, give me. I want, I want, I want. Then you can be my God. Versus, I am not worthy of the least of thy mercies. There's been a change in that boy. Okay, well, he's no longer a boy, he's a man. Now here's his want. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, for I fear him. Thou said, I will surely do good and make the seed as sand of the seas. So he says, I'm afraid of my brother. I did him wrong. He's mad at me. When I left, he wanted to kill me. He said, please bless me. But you said I was going to have seed like the sand, like the dust like the stars in the sky. You said it, God. That's when you're bold, when you're quoting God's promises. Brother Danny just said, Dolph, what was those three prayers again? When you ask for forgiveness, when you ask for wisdom, and when you ask for the Holy Spirit. You can be bold in those requests, because God said so. And Lord, if you see fit to heal this cancer, please. We're not as bold in that one, because he didn't say that one. We still ask. He might say yes, he might say no, he might say not yet. One more. 
And I think you knew I was going to go here because I've been wearing this one out for the last six years too. The woman caught in adultery. I want you to see sin and grace in one saying. You got it? Do you remember the, the Jewish Pharisees were mad at Jesus? They were stealing their crowds. So they set them up and they grabbed this woman. I think she was a prostitute and they caught her right in the middle of the act of an adulterous act. And they drag her and they throw her on the ground. And he says, Moses says you're supposed to stone her. What are you going to do? And Jesus challenges the Jews and they all peel off and they walk away. So he's standing there all alone with this woman. And notice what he says in John 8 and verse 11. I'm going to start at verse 10. When Jesus had lifted himself up and son none but the woman, he said, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Grace. Go and sin no more. Sin. Right? And we've been over that before. To say either one of them all by themselves is not love. You've got to say both. Humble and bold. Grace and sin. That's how that works. Consider the presence or absence of humility and boldness in the following. This is kind of like a test. I want you to see if you can figure out what's, what's here. Is it a big Jesus, good understanding of grace and sin? Is it a little Jesus, a small understanding of grace and sin? Is it good understanding of grace, but no understanding of sin or flip-flop the other way? Just the opposite. Which, is it, which way is it leaning? Is it a little one? Is it a big one? Let's see how you do. Number one. Mark 10, 35 through 39. James and John. I love James and John. Lord, let me throw fireballs at these Samaritans for disrespecting you. And Jesus, no, that's not how we roll, guys. I'd love to have brothers like that behind my back. Amen. Mark 10, 35 through 39. James and John said, Master, we would that thou shouldest, that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Jesus said, what would ye that I should do for you? They said, grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said, ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? Be baptized with the baptism that I be baptized with? They said, we can. What kind of understanding would you describe? We can. Pretty young in the faith. They grossly misunderstood their abilities and their need for the Lord. I think they, under, they, they, they were still looking for a little Jesus. Amen? And Jesus was getting to the end because when you go to Mark chapter 10, he was coming down the wire where he was going to be crucified in short order. He didn't have a whole lot of time to work with these two brothers, but he had to. You get them to a place where they realize... For three and a half years, they haven't been running around and, and following and being mentored by a little Jesus. They are being mentored by a big Jesus. We can. I can't do anything without him. All of a sudden, you realize your state. Okay, let's go to the next one. Second Corinthians 9 and 10. This is Paul. Remember, Paul went and he had some kind of physical ailment. And he said, Lord, please take it away. And God said, no. But notice what it says. God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly will I rather glorify in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
I take pleasures in my infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. You know what that sounds like? When I'm humbled, then I'm bold. That's what it sounds like to me. Do you understand? He says, when I'm not humble, when I'm physically able, I think I can do the preaching. But I'm weak and I've got problems. I'm leaning on you for to preach. And that's when I'm the boldest preacher. That's when I'm the most effective preacher. That's when I'm the most powerful preacher. So that's what he's saying. So, so somehow we can balance humble and bold. How do, how do we both? Well, in order to do both, you have to have an understanding of sin, but you also have an understanding of grace. And you think, well, I understand both sin and grace. I know, but you got to do it at the same time. One will overpower the other, and I get focused on my sin, then I'll get focused on the grace, and, and i got to bring them both together along at the same time. i got news for you. I think the Jesus I worship today is probably a little bit bigger than the Jesus I worshiped 10 or 15 years ago. Who knows? As I get older, Jesus might even get bigger for me. Luke 22, you knew I was going to go to Peter. Here's Peter. They had that uh, first communion service. They've washed feet. They argued about who is the best preacher. They're really going at it. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. Peter said, Lord, I am ready. Sounds like James and John. We can. Lord, I'm ready. Now, what's wrong with that? He said, I am ready. He says, I'm ready if you come with me. Or, we are ready, meaning you and I. But as soon as he said, I am ready, we knew that he was little misunderstanding in his own abilities. Amen? He underestimated his strength and he overestimated his strength. Hebrews 4.16. Notice what's in this passage. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Look, both of them are there. You've got to look for it, though, right? Power and boldness, but also humility. See the humility? The humility is because you're coming to God in a time of need. I've tried it. It doesn't work. It's like that woman that spent all her living on doctors, and finally, after spending all her money, she says, well, might as well try Jesus. She says, I've done it. I've done technology. I've done experts. I've done money. I've done everything. I tried to buy it. But we come to him boldly. I am boldest when I recognize my dependence. That's when you're bold. It sounds like a contradiction, though, Right? It seems, well, when I'm depending on God, that's when I'm weak. That's what Marx wants you to believe. I think I've shared this story with you before. I'll do it one more time. When I was uh, transitioning from investment banking to teaching, I had to take a series of classes, and one of the classes I had to take was from an educational psychologist. So I'm in this class with a bunch of 20-somethings, and I'm almost 40. And he's 
intimidating the 20-somethings. I just, I, I, I wasn't intimidated by, first of all, we're about the same age. And uh, he was challenging me on my Christianity. He says, you know, Dolph, you're a pretty sharp guy. I'm surprised you got to rely on religion as a crutch. Yeah, remember what I told him? I said, Jesus is not my crutch. He's my breath. You are boldest when you're humble. And I could be bold to that professor who could have flunked me because I was humble because I knew my dependence on the Lord. Strange combination. And it, by intuitively, it's, we think it contradicts. But no, it doesn't contradict. It's a perfect marriage. The perfect combo. Cheese and pepperoni. That's a perfect combo. Yeah. I know some people that put ham and pineapple on a pizza. Wow, what a terrible combo, right? What a ridiculous idea. I see some people blushing. I guess I hit somebody's toes. But when you hear humility and boldness, to me it almost sounds like ham and pineapple. They don't go together. But in reality, there's nothing better than those two together. So may the the Lord bless us and be wise, not only looking at ourselves in the mirror, but sharing and looking at the people we interact with and try to figure out, okay, sin, grace, both, where they're at, young, immature in the faith. And we don't do it pharisaically. We do it because we want to help. God bless you. Thank you.